I'm going to read through these Beatitudes. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read all the way through verse 11. Um, and it'll be up on the screen for you guys to follow along if you want to. And then, and then we'll go from there. So beginning in, in uh, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And today our focus is going to be this uh, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, um, that you have promised us that your word does not return void. And so we can, we can incorporate scripture and the truth of your word in our, in our singing songs and our worship time. We can sit and we can and, and dig apart these passages of scripture knowing that this is the way that you have ordained that we change. That this word, as we read it and we dwell on who you are and who you are in Jesus, that we can we change. We just we we meditate on who you are. We apply these truths to our lives, and, and, and the Holy Spirit works in us, and, and we change. And so we thank you so much for that promise. I'm holding you to that promise today, Father, that you would do that as we study your word. Change us, change me. I know that you've already been working on me all week as I've studied, and, and I pray that those who would uh, hear today. God, your spirit would come and give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see Jesus, give us hearts to receive this word with gladness. We thank you for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today we're looking at the seventh beatitude, and as we as we continue through this section, there are several things that I want to keep in mind. I, I reiterated in, in when we started the beatitudes, and I would just want to kind of hit on this as we go week to week to keep our minds in a framework of what we're talking about, what Jesus is saying, and who He's talking to, and 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 stuff like that. So. A few things. First of all, remember Jesus is preaching to a Jewish audience under the oppression of Roman rule. It says that his disciples came at the end of the Sermon on the Mount um, in chapter 7. It says um, that the crowds, when he finished these saying, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So we know that by this, at this point, or while he's teaching, crowds begin to walk up and sit down. So he's talking to these Jewish people and they are under Roman rule. The, 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 the government at that time, the Roman government was had control and was kind of in, in an oppressing state over the Jews. And, and a few weeks ago, I mentioned that during this time there was a kind of a remnant of a group called the Zealots who were... Um, almost like an extremist group of the Jews. Some of them were even known for carrying daggers, almost like a, a shank that they would stab people with in crowds who were their enemies who were either Romans or Jews that they considered to be um, maybe slipping over to the dark side or whatever or going to that um, slipping over to that Roman side. And so, so needless to say this was not a peaceful time for the Jewish people especially if you were one of these um, if you were considered a zealot. Um, we've also learned in previous weeks that the Jewish people were under the impression that this kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, when it, when it comes, it's going to be an earthly kingdom with a, a, a palace and city walls and, and, and gates and a king and, and an army and chariots and horses and a harem and all the things that when you read through the Old Testament and see what those kings had, that's what they were expecting. So when they heard the kingdom of heaven's coming, that's what they were thinking. Like there's going to be, there's gonna, a king is going to come, overthrow the government, there's going to rise up a new power and we as God's people will finally be lifted to where we're supposed to be. Um, so in chapter 4, we heard John the Baptist come and he's preaching, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then um, at the end of, or that's chapter 3, then at the end, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus also comes and he's preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so these statements, as these Jewish people would hear this, um, and, and we can... We can know that as this stuff was preached, it would circulate back into town. There's a man outside. He's preaching these, preaching these things about the kingdom of heaven. That this would keep these Jewish people on their toes politically, um, kind of on edge, and would feed their assumptions. Like they're looking for this king who's coming. They're looking for a specific type of kingdom. And, uh, and so that's kind of the mindset that these Jews have. Um, I've also said many times as we've studied, as we began Matthew, and we'll know, we'll see this even more as we begin to go further into Matthew, that the kingdom of heaven that Jesus preaches and teaches about comes in complete opposition to almost everything that we think, even in our world today and especially in their day. In, in, in the way that we operate, the way that we should treat other people, the way the government should treat us, the way we should respond to the government. Everything you'll see as Jesus teaches, he just takes everything we think and just flips it over and says, you're wrong. It's, it's the other way. And so, um, and, and we see that, we don't see it much more plainly in this verse. Blessed are the peacemakers. So we can imagine Jesus' audience when they hear this. Blessed are the peacemakers for... They shall be called sons of God. Make peace. Make peace. Like we can imagine these people were probably, some of them probably kind of upset. And there are, I'm sure, in any setting where the scriptures are taught, sometimes there are people who get really angry at what they hear. So we can imagine they're, they're kind of confused. I, I wonder what he really means. Surely he knows what's going on. Surely Jesus knows the oppression that we're under. Surely he knows how they treat us. That's, that's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. That's Joseph's boy. He's a Jew. He knows. He's grown up in this. He, surely he can't mean that we really are supposed to be trying to make peace. We're God's people and we're being oppressed. And he's saying, make peace. So the question is, were they really expected to make peace? Are we, when we read this, are we really expected to make peace? Does he really mean what he's saying? We've, we've read through several of these Beatitudes and, and we've learned that sometimes when we read it on the surface, we really don't understand it. When we dig into it, it's like, that's not what I thought it meant at all. So does he really mean peace? Is he, is he really talking about peace like we think of peace? Um, this statement, once again, just like all the Beatitudes, will grind against our nature. We don't want to do this. We don't like this. This it's goes against us. And that's because, like I've said, these are spiritual truths for a spiritual people that make up a spiritual kingdom that exists in the hearts of this people. And it can only be produced by God's Spirit working inside of your heart to produce this. It's not natural. It does not come naturally to any of us. Even if you say, wait a second, I'm a pacifist. So anytime there's any conflict or any sort of uh, confrontation, I'm out of it. Keep me out of it. I'm a, I'm a pacifist. And even that person... We'll learn today that this grinds against your very core because the making of being a peacemaker, that making, that pushes the pacifist onto the playing field, gets him up off a seat and says, go, make peace. And then the peace of peacemaking pushes the zealot to reconciliation. So nobody, nobody gets to sit on the sidelines. Nobody's out of this teaching. And, and this is hard. It was hard to study, hard to prepare, hard to teach, hard to, to, to apply, even though it's probably one of the most practical of all the Beatitudes. So first I want to look at this word peace. Because if we, as the, the blessed, the believers, those who... The kingdom of God dwells in our hearts. If we are going to be peacemakers, we're going to make peace. We've got to know what peace is. So let's, let's dig this up. Um, peacemakers is one word here made up of two different words. And the word that is peace comes from a smaller root, which means to join, to bring together. So it's almost kind of like we learned about purity last week. And purity in its the, the simplest form of the word purity is just one or single it's, it's kind of the same way with this word uh, peace. It's, it's to join together, to, to have nothing that would separate. 
Nothing in between. So when we think of having a peace in a relationship between others, we're thinking of the state in which there's nothing in between me and another person or two other people that's keeping them apart. That they're happy to be together. When they are together, they're happy. There's tranquility. There's peace. There's no arguments. There's no dissension. It's just peace together, to bring together. So if we go back to some of the connections that we've made with the other Beatitudes... We, we learn more about this idea of peace and how it pertains to spiritual life. We've said from the beginning that these Beatitudes, they build on one another. They're, they're not even like steps. It's like they almost overlap one another and stack to, to build something. And so we learned that in verses 7 through 9 where we see uh, being merciful, we see being pure in heart, we see being peacemakers, that these are fruit. They're produced by the Holy Spirit inside of us, and even more specifically in this section, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6. So as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus produces this in us and we produce that mercy. We produce that pure in heart. We put forth that making peace. So if, we, if you put it all together, and we, we understand that verses 3 through 5 are kind of our the, the way that we perceive our sinful nature, as we consider our beggarly state in regard to our sin, and we're poor in spirit, and then we mourn over our sin and the sin of the world and, and the consequences of sin, and we allow this realization, this right understanding of who we are to, to change our attitude and our conduct toward others, which is being meek, as we see all of that, we want, we want to be different. I want to change. I want to be like Jesus. So we pursue, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then as we hunger and thirst for that righteousness or being right with God through repentance and faith in Jesus, God satisfies that hunger. He says, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. So he satisfies that and declares us righteous on behalf of Jesus. Jesus died for our sin. We get that righteousness. And so... As we are regenerate in our heart, as we are born again and the Spirit of Christ comes in to dwell in us, we begin to produce certain fruit. Every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. And those fruit in the Beatitudes are mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking. So that's kind of that stepladder approach. They're building on one another. We're working towards Something Okay, then there's another connection that I've shown for a couple weeks now about how verses 3, 4, and 5 are over here and they directly correlate to 7, 8, and 9. In the middle, there's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So being poor in spirit will lead you to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which will lead you to treat other people with mercy. When you realize... In my sinful nature, I have nothing to offer God. I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. So I look at other people. I don't think, man, I wish they'd get their act together. I wish they'd live right. I say, no, they're, they're sinners like I am. So we show mercy. The same way, when we mourn over our sin, we're broken over our sin. We see sin in our lives and we don't like it. I don't like what is going on in my heart. I want to get it out. I pursue righteousness. I pursue that purity of heart. I want to get rid of the imperfections and God does that in us and we understand that, that that God's free grace is our only hope. And so we see our sin and we want it gone. So that's that's verses that's verse four and how it relates to verse eight. And then you got verse five. The man who is meek, the man who has a true view of himself and attitude and conduct with respect to others, will inevitably seek to make peace with others. And how does this work? Well, we learned when we talked about being meek that the meek man doesn't lay a claim to any kind of self-assertion. He doesn't push himself to the front. He doesn't climb on top of other people to get to the top. He doesn't do that. He doesn't make for himself a pedestal and say, I'm up here and everybody else needs to just know their place. Respect me because I'm, I'm this man. He doesn't consider himself as anything to be regarded as special, as respected. He's just meek. He understands once again, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I have no claim on anything over anybody else. It's grace. Free grace has been given to me and I have been saved. That's meekness. So instead of climbing over people and allowing his 
own desires and passions and his mindset of himself to rise above people, he makes peace with others. He doesn't see anything that would divide him from anybody else. There's nothing separating me from anybody because we're all on the same playing field. So he seeks in all circumstances to be joining himself with others rather than finding things that separate him from other people. I hope that makes sense. And I'm going to read from James because I think this helps it out. In James 3, beginning in verse 17 and going through into chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. For wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Notice that relation. Pure in heart, then peacemakers. First pure, then peaceable. Some people say that James in his letter is actually an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So wisdom from above, that's godly wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then he goes in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he's addressing quarrels and fights. The the exact thing that separates us from other people. That the opposite of peace, quarrels and fights. He's saying... That thing that separate you in mind and spirit, physically, if you're physically fighting, the things that are causing those things is your passions, your desires, the things that we want that we think will give us pleasure. I want that. And so if anything else gets in my way, if anybody stands in my way of my passion, my pleasure, my happiness, push them to the side. I'm not having anything to do with them because I'm pursuing my personal passions. And so we think... That our way, our desires, our needs, our pleasures should come first. And everybody else needs to take notice of my pleasures, take notice of my desires, take notice of what makes me happy, and get in in line. And know where I am and and know your place. The only problem is, every individual person thinks this way in their sinful nature. And so if everybody's thinking that everybody else needs to get on their level or submit to them, you can see how there's never going to be peace. The meek man... However, doesn't let those earthly desires lead him to argue and fight. The the world and its pleasures have no hold on him. You remember we talked about that. He doesn't hold his wants and his pleasures over the heads of others. And so you can see how that connection can be made. The meek man will also be a peaceful man. So peace is simply bringing together that which has been separated. This may be between a husband and a wife. It may be between a father and a son. It may be between two friends. It may be between two countries or two political parties. And and we could go on and on. Jesus says, blessed are those who, or blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who seek to see a joining rather than a separating. Now, as we've moved through the Beatitudes... It's helped me a lot, and I hope it's helped you to kind of look at the positive and then the negative, or maybe sometimes the negative first. Like, what is what is peacemaking not? What is it not defined as? Because I read this stuff, I grew up in church, I was reading this stuff, and I get to studying, and I'm thinking, I had no idea what I was reading. I was, I was way off. So, I want to talk about what peacemaking is not to help us understand this. Um... A normal assumption from our perspective, usually, is that peace happens when two opposing sides simply cease to oppose one another. So we consider the absence of any kind of war, any kind of quarrel, any kind of fight, any kind of disagreement to be peace. So in essence, peace equals no fighting. But if you think about it, that doesn't really fit our definition of joining together. I was studying this morning, I was thinking about the Civil War and how... At Appomattox Courthouse, Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant. The war was over. Has there been peace, especially in the South and the North, or between the races since then? No, we're still working that way. There weren't. It wasn't like, you know, hey, Ulysses S. Grant, we're buddies now. No, it was just like, you're killing all my guys, so I guess I better just throw in the towel because I don't want to die. There wasn't peace, but there wasn't any fighting. And so we see that. That, that was 148 years ago, and we're still... There's still that tension. Many, almost every married couple will testify to those times when there's a disagreement. And you're arguing and you're fighting. And one, one of the, the two will simply shut down. Done. Not fighting anymore. And they'll walk away. go to the bedroom. Whatever. And if you're dating and you, you argue, you've seen this. The, the, 
that person ceases to argue their point. They just give up. I'm over. Shut down. Now, this may look like peace. There's no arguing. Nobody's fighting. It's quiet. But any married couple will tell you that's not peace. It's not over. It's coming back. At some point, it's coming back. It's not peace. And they will, they will, they can, they can testify to that. It will come again. Reconciliation has not taken place. There's not been a joining together. Fighting has stopped. There may be tranquility in the home. There may be no talking for days. But it's not peace. And and you you know this. So the disagreement and the passions that are at war within the spouses in that that scenario have simply been laid down for a time, but it's not peace. We could also talk about political scenes in which peace has been sought after. Um, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, and then the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s ended segregation in schools based on race. When we go back to the Civil War, let's face it, we're not reconciled. You look at this church, not a black person in here. We're not reconciled. It's, it's not peaceful. It's not joined back together. We're still making those strides. We can look at our culture and see there's strides to be made. I would love to see every race of people in here. And I know that's hard and we, you know, we just human beings are human beings and we just don't feel comfortable around types of people who don't look like us and dress like us. That's no excuse. We should be coming together. But we can see that. There are strides to be made. So peace is not just an absence of an argument or a war. I mean, we don't often see the, the violence that used to take place in our nation's history based on hatred of different races. But we know that it's not completely reconciled. So it's not just sitting back and abstaining from a confrontation. Most people who consider themselves pacifists operate in this way. They just refuse to participate. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. No confrontation. No disagreement. Anything of that sort. And that's not peace either. That's just not doing anything. So another misconception about peace, which is kind of along the same lines, is that peace comes when someone simply concedes their side of a disagreement in order to stop the argument. And so in, in the name of peacemaking, peacemaking, some people just throw in the towel in an argument, even if it means that evil wins the day. I just don't want to argue. Let's just, let's just get over these disagreements. Why can't we all just get along and put these things aside and... There are things that we should argue about and settle. There are things that separate us from other people, from other Christians, from other doctrines. If, if, if the Bible and, and Scripture is very clear that there are there is sound doctrine. And if churches aren't teaching sound doctrine, this is something to divide on. And the Bible teaches divide on these issues. If somebody's not teaching the Bible, divide. And so there are, it's not just a throw in the towel just, just to keep peace. Another example, there may be a, a Christian husband and a father who's seeking to lead his family in a godly way. So he's taking steps to teach his children to honor their parents, to, to obey their mom and dad, to, to do what they're supposed to do, to not pitch fits and argue. This husband is doing what the Bible has commanded him to do. He is doing what God has told him to do. That is his job as a husband and a man of the household is to lead spiritually. So now imagine that a child, one of his kids is is being disobedient, pitching fits, um, not listening. And there's an unbelieving mother who refuses to take those necessary steps to to train the child, to discipline the child, to to corral that child back into where they're supposed to go. So the mother lets the child walk all over. No, I don't want to be mean. We don't want to raise them to be aggressive or or whatever the, the, the sociologists tell us will happen if we discipline our children. And so what happens is... And married couples can, can, uh, can testify to this. That mother can manipulate the father, can manipulate, make the home life miserable just because of that disagreement. And the, and the husband will say, man, I'm just tired of arguing. I just want to get along. Let's just be friends. Let's, so just, just do whatever you want to with the kids. Well, that's not peace. He's thrown in the towel on the biblical commands of, of, of fatherhood and being a spiritual leader for the sake of so-called peace. The arguing would stop, but sin would win the day. 
sin would take over. And that's not making peace. So there are issues where a disagreement has to come up. It has to be there so that we can fix the problem. And, and we'll see later what this peace is and how that, how that leads us to God. So remember, purity of heart comes before peace. Unity and focus toward honoring the Lord must be held up for true peace to take place. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. We have to have that unity of heart that's focused on the Lord, then we can proceed to peace. So, and, and we're going to keep, we'll hit on that again in just a second. So once again, peace means bringing together to unify. So pacifism won't work. Pretending like there's no problem won't work. And neither will disobedience to God's word in the name of peace. Just to keep an argument, these things are not peace. Peace is an active term. It means to bring something together that is separated. It's not sitting on the sidelines, refusing to take part. Peace requires getting up, grabbing two opposing sides and getting them together. Reconciling people, situations. So we got to remember as we study these Beatitudes why they are here, what they're here to teach us. They're spiritual truths. So... First of all, yes, the peace that Jesus is talking about is peace between human relationships and other people. We see this in verses like Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. This is Paul speaking. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul's teaching this Ephesian church, unify together, stay together, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And again, in Colossians 3, verse 15, he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. So we, we see in those verses that this he is talking about peace among brothers and sisters, and they both tie peace into unity, coming together. So God wants us to get along with one another, to have unity in mind and spirit, to strive in unison toward a common goal within the church. But first and foremost, there must be spiritual peace. There must be purity of heart. Before there can be outward peace among people, nations, inside the homes, there must be spiritual peace. Before there can be outward change, there must be an inward change. And that's exactly what Paul's speaking to in Colossians 3. Because he begins that section saying you've, you've died to yourself and you're raised with Christ. And so now, live in peace. You've been changed, so live in peace. Without that death to yourself, there can be no peace. Without that death to your, your own passions, your own desires, those things that rage inside of you, dying to yourself, there can be no true peace. Without being meek, there can be no peace. It cannot be true peace. But you also can't live to simply exalt the passions and the desires of others. Because some people, in the name of meekness, will say, I just want to make everybody happy. Whatever you want, I'll just do it. You just tell me what to do and I'll just make you happy and we'll be peaceful. That's not true peace. We're talking about true peace. Jesus is defining peace. The kind of peace that Jesus gives us, the kind of peace that God produces transcends any type of human desire. It's not, it doesn't, it's not on our level of earthly desires. This peace is a peace in its truest form. It's a peace based on the most absolute truth in the universe. This is peace as God defines it. Not how we, just, not how we think peace should be. It's not, we don't get to define it. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's not leaving it up to you to say, all right, now go. Whatever will make peace in your situation, go and do that. He's not saying that. He's not leaving it up to the world to say, well, let's define peace and then shoot for it. We are to be those as Christians who seek to make true peace. So this begs the question, if peace is joining together, what is separated that needs to be joined together? If you take away Human passions, lusts, desires, wants, needs, pleasures. Take away all that stuff and we just have the spiritual man. Then what is separated that needs to be joined together? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Talking about Christians. So we are to make peace. 
That means we are literally the ones who are joining together that which has been separated. So for us to make peace, real peace, not peace like we say, peace like God says, real peace, we must first understand what is not at peace. So anyone, I'm I'm sure we would all agree that we can look around and we can see the world physically is not at peace. Um, There are wars everywhere. You can't turn on the news or read a newspaper without reading about wars, about crimes against humanity. Physically, there is no peace. Miss America always wants world peace. It It hasn't happened yet. But we know that this outward physical peace cannot happen unless there's true spiritual peace. So if we take the spiritual nature of the Beatitudes into account, we know that true peace comes first in the spirit of the individual. World peace may seem like a daunting task. The world is big. There are a lot of people in the world. But if we look at it on the, on the scope of individual peace, one person at a time, it's not that intimidating. See, if there are more individuals, individual people on this planet who know, who knew true spiritual peace, then collectively the world would begin to see outward peace. The world doesn't need these schemes and these models and these huge structures of of, uh, organizations and things. What the world needs is more true Christians as individuals making peace. Even if you look at the wars that go on politically, what is that warring and fighting if it's not the passions and desires of men warring against one another? It just so happens that those men can control armies and nations. It's, it's the same thing. So, what's the, so let's ask the question. Spiritually speaking, what is separated that needs to be joined together again? And I hope that we, sh- we would all know the answer. Humanity spiritually separated from God because of sin. Individuals are born into sin and are by nature children under the wrath of God, separated from Him. Now this, once again, is a case of passions at war. The problem is God's passions, they always win. His passions and His desires will always happen. So when we come up and we say, yeah, God, that's your desire, but here i got my desires and my passions... That's not gonna, that, that will not end well for us. It doesn't work that way. We don't get to come to God and say, here's how I think it should work, God. It doesn't happen that way. He always wins. So he seeks peace on his terms. And we tend to seek it on our individual terms and it doesn't work out. So we know that our God is a God of peace. He's the source of all good things. We learned that in James also. The source of everything good. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father Above And so, peace comes from God. True, spiritual peace can only come from God. It can only come from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of the believer working that peace. That's the only way it can happen because God is the source of peace. He's the only source. He's the only spring of that peace. In Scripture, God is called the God of peace in Romans 15.33, Romans 16.20. Philippians 4, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, and Hebrews 13, 20. All of those verses refer to God as the God of peace. And you take that back to the Old Testament, you know, where everybody's like, the God of the Old Testament, He's mean, He's killing people. No, He's the God of peace still. He doesn't change. He's the God of peace. So all true peace comes from Him. He is the source. Because of Adam's sin... The relationship that God had with humanity has been fractured. We're no longer connected to the source of true peace. And no one can bring about true peace without being connected to the Father by the Son. So as Christians, we understand that. We understand that separation. We understand that peace needs to be made. We are connected to the source of peace by faith in Jesus Christ. And now we are commissioned to go and make peace. This is our command. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Great Commission, which is the command of Jesus to all Christians until He comes back. He says, go and disciple the nations. That is, preach the gospel and introduce the nations to the God of peace through a relationship with Jesus. So God has given us this job of peacemakers. No one else on earth has this job except us. 
But the problem is that it seems like the world is trying a whole lot harder to get peace than we are. They're trying everything they can think of to achieve peace. We have peace treaties, we have contracts, political associations. All of these started to achieve peace while most people who call themselves Christians simply sit back and fold their arms and say, well, everybody's going to hell. The world's going to hell. What are we going to do about it? The world's trying to achieve peace. But we are the only ones who've been given the command to make peace, to go and do it. And Jesus has secured this union, that joining together. In Colossians, we read it, that Jesus is the, he is all the fullness of God, is pleased to dwell bodily in Jesus. And that he has made peace by the blood of his cross. He's, he's, he's secured that union. And so now we are left to fulfill the commission until he returns. We are the agents of peacemaking on earth. So while the world tries to establish physical, social, political peace, all of these are in vain and are vain attempts because they've missed the first and most important type of peace, spiritual peace. They completely reject it. Peace that is in the heart, that is the joining together of the human heart to our great God, the God of peace through faith in Jesus. John the Baptist came and he preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. We have been commissioned to go and preach repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's, what, that's our gospel. And that alone, that's the only avenue of true peace. There is no other way. The way is narrow. The gate is narrow. There's only one way. Repent and trust Jesus. So that message that we've been given, as you can hear, even when I say among Christians, it doesn't sit well. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Stop living the way you're living. Don't chase after your desires anymore. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. That doesn't sit well with me. I don't like that because I have passions. I have desires. You must die to yourself. Die to your passions. Give them all up for the sake of Christ. That's the gospel that we preach. And that message of true repentance, it doesn't take into account our passions. We don't get it anymore. We don't get to say, well, yeah, but I want to do this. No more. We chase after Christ. He becomes our passion. And so the goal of this gospel is the sole purpose of exalting God's glory and His delight in the world. So peace is not merely sitting back and hoping everything calms down. Peace requires us to get up, confront sin. The very thing that's caused the separation. If we're going to join together, we've got to get rid of the separation. That is sin. So we have to confront sin. And when sin is confronted and dealt with and repented of and Jesus' blood washes it clean, peace happens. Reconciliation happens. Another thing about peace is that when it comes to making peace, somebody is going to have to sacrifice something. In every situation. If we go back to the model of the married couple who are having an argument, we can see this very plainly. Because some of you have learned over the years that sometimes that passion that's at war within you is not worth the argument. It's not worth the separation. It's not like you're giving in to evil. You're realizing that the evil is here and it's not worth an argument. I want to I be joined back to my wife. I don't want to argue. We have to sacrifice our own personal passions for the sake of that true peace. So in the same way, that spiritual divide between us and God requires a sacrifice on somebody's part. Somebody has to concede. The good news is that God has given His own Son to die for us to reconcile us back to Him. He didn't concede the victory. It looked like He did. It looked like He got beat. But that was... The cross. He sacrificed His own Son. Here's another scripture. Ephesians 2. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's us Gentiles, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's us. That's every person born apart from Christ. No hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So notice it's in Christ we've been brought near. It is by His blood that we're brought near. He Himself is our peace. He is the peace that we're searching for. So He's joined us together to the people of God. By His cross we've been united to each other and to God. God is the one who gave up His Son to death on the cross so that peace would be made. All of that... So that we would be reconciled to God and His perfect peace would be glorified. It's not just so we could be happy. It's so that one day we're going to look back and we're going to glorify God for His peace given in Jesus. So as Christians, we are the only ones who know this true peace. Nobody else knows it. It's it's special to us. So we're the only ones that can go and make peace in the world. Nobody else can do it. It's only us. The world is trying... But they're failing miserably. This is a quote from John MacArthur. He said, At the end of World War II, the United Nations was formed as an agency for world peace. Since that time, there has not been one single day of peace in the world. Not one day. The world is filled with never-ending upheavals. Though the motto of the United Nations is this, To have succeeding generations be free from the scourge of war. That is a pipe dream. The New York Times reported in 1968 that there had been 14,553 wars that they could count since 36 B.C. Since 1945, the count has continued. From 1945 to the mid-60s, there were between 50 and 70 wars, 164 internationally significant outbreaks of violence involving some 82 nations. That's 30 years ago, and they continue, end quote. See, the world's searching for peace. They're looking for it. They want peace, but the problem is they also want to satisfy their passions and their desires. Jesus says, don't work like that. You've got to die to yourself. Die to your passions. These passions at war in depraved hearts cannot find peace. So the problem is they can only conceive of outward physical peace. That's all they understand. We talk about peace. They They cannot grasp the peace that we have. Their search for peace is a search to just end war when they need spiritual peace. I know it sounds cliche, but what the world needs is Jesus. That's what they need. Now, as Christians, we've been given the mandate to make peace. Go and take it. But we usually try to issue peace in the form of legislation. We tend to think that the way we get people to know peace... And the peace of Jesus is just legislate their morality in order to make them act like us. That way there will be peace. There won't be anything separating us if y'all just act like us. And it doesn't work that way. The church does not, nor has it ever, had a job description of corralling lost sinners into acceptable life patterns. Especially when the word acceptable is defined by us and our cultural standards. That's not bringing peace. So our ultimate example is always Christ. Look at the way He brings peace. Did He simply sit in heaven and and wait for the sin problem to just quiet down? It'll it'll go away. Just hang on. God, it'll go away. No. Did He force people to act a certain way so that they would look good outwardly? No. He can't stand that. That makes Him furious when people just act good and they think that's the, the goal. He hates that. He moved to action. He came to earth. He preached repentance. He said, turn from your sin. Worship the living God. He challenged sinners. He confronted Satan face to face. He lived the life of moral perfection. And then he died to secure the reconciliation for us. Joining us back to God. So our job is not to just corral sinners into acceptable life patterns. Or legislate morality. And it also isn't just sit back and hope that people can see their error. You know, well, look, just let them have the way. They'll see someday. They'll, they'll look back and they'll... It doesn't... That's not what we do. Our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is to call people to repentance in Jesus Christ and faith in Him for the forgiveness of sins. 
and to try and find true peace in the cross of Jesus. That's our job. That's how we make peace. We reconcile people to God by pointing them to Jesus. We just point to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That is what we do. We've been reconciled and then we go to people and say, be reconciled to God. I implore you. We're new creations. And so we go and do this. We run to the world with this message, with the gospel. We go tell the world. That Jesus has died to reconcile them. We tell them how we have been reconciled to God. We implore others on behalf of Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. We beg and we plead with them. Be reconciled to God. Be at peace with God. Most people don't realize that God is not at peace with them. And that I've said this before. Um, you know, Forrest Gump assumed that Lieutenant Dan had made his peace with God. The, the, the problem is not, am I to make my peace with God? The problem is God is not at peace with me. That's the issue. God is angry at how we act. It upsets Him. He's very mad at our sin. And so when we go and tell people this, it's confrontational. They don't like to hear this. It's not fun in that moment. But it's either, hey, I love you enough to tell you the truth or... I love you almost enough to tell you the truth, but not enough to try to keep you out of hell. So we have to go and make peace. It is hard, but God has promised. Read the end. Read the end of the book. He's promised. He will gather His people. It will be done. So that's what it means to make true peace. It means bring together that which has been broken. Reconcile God's people back to Him by proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's our job. Go into all nations and make disciples. That's what we do. Jesus goes on. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now this is real quickly in closing. We read this sometimes. We read these verses that have a, a two propositions put together. And we read it wrongly sometimes. And we say, okay, so I'll, if, if I can make peace, then I will be called a son of God. That God is looking down from heaven at all the people who are making peace and he's, he's saving them all. He's making peace. He's mine. He's making peace. He's a child of God. They read it in that way. And, we, and that's, it's, it's a wrong reading of the text. And if that were true, then that would make salvation an issue of the works that I do, which the Bible clearly teaches is false. So I think it would help to, to read another verse that kind of phrases something in the same way. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Romans 1, 1 through 4, this is Paul speaking. It's not related, but I think the, the phrasing helps. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul said Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection. So do we read that and say, okay, so Jesus wasn't really the Son of God until He came back from the dead? No, we don't say that. We, we, what we read this, we, first of all, the Bible teaches Jesus is God and has been God from eternity past. He is God in the flesh. And so that interpretation won't work. So what we say is, what this must mean is that Jesus is the Son of God. But then there were some things that happened on earth that declared out loud to the natural world, to the supernatural world, this is the Son of God. Raising from the dead, this is the Son of God. Look, God raised Him from the dead. Walking on water, bringing the, the dead back to life, healing the sick, curing diseases, forgiving sin. All of these things declared to all who would hear, this is the Son of God. And so, that's how that works. So in the same way, when we come to Matthew... When we go about 
And we share the gospel with Jesus Christ and with others. We do that. We are obedient to the Great Commission. We have been told to disciple the nations. So we teach that Jesus has come. He's lived. He's died. He's come back to life for our justification so that we can be reconciled to God. We call people to repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. These actions are not conversion actions. We don't become a Christian as we do these things. They don't make us Christians. These obedient acts just proclaim to the world that we can see and the world that we can't see. This is the Son of God. These are God's children. See how they're acting? They're doing what their father told them to do. They're doing what Jesus told them to do. They're being obedient. These are the sons of God. These are simply the fruit that come from a branch that has been grafted into the true vine, Jesus Christ. Conversely, and this is the last thing I'll say, to refuse to make peace in this way proclaims to all who would hear in the natural world and the supernatural world that you are not a child of God. It is very easy to claim to be a child of God. It is very easy to say, I'm a Christian. But the Bible says you will know a tree by its fruit. So where's the fruit? If you're not actively seeking to see people reconciled to God, sharing the gospel, that based on God's word, we can assume you don't know the true peace and therefore you cannot go and make the true peace. We can, that's the only assumption we can make. If you don't know Jesus, you can't be a peacemaker. You can't tell others about Jesus. And so, in closing, Christians, we have been given a job. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all that I've commanded. That's our job. In the nations, to the four corners of the earth, we've been given that. Do that. If you're not doing it, repent and start today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, repent. Trust Jesus. Start today. I'm going to close in prayer. And uh, as I close, you can pray in your heart. If you'd like to talk to me more about that or, or uh, one of the other elders, that's fine. Um, I'd love to, to converse about that more. But let's, let's, be, let's be closed in prayer.